Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, there is a little less D in your KD these days. That's right. Packages of Kraft Dinner contain about 11% less product than they did not that long ago. Another example of what's commonly called shrinkflation. One of America's longest standing and foremost experts on the practice joins me with his thoughts and some hints on how to spot and avoid shrinkflation if possible this holiday season. Well, from the Blues Brothers to Ghostbusters, Dan Aykroyd is a Canadian comedy legend. He's always been fascinated with the unusual and the bizarre. You can tell that from Ghostbusters by itself. And uh, The Unbelievable is the focus of his new History Channel series called The Unbelievable with Dan Aykroyd. Uh, It looks into strange but true stories from over the decades, the centuries. And he's with me, believe it or not, to talk about it. Some explosive allegations in a U.S. criminal indictment released today in New York that spell out an alleged plot connected to the Indian government to carry out multiple assassinations of Sikh activists in North America. And yes, there is a link to the murder of a prominent Sikh activist in B.C. earlier this year, one that the Prime Minister uh, got a lot of blowback from India on when he made those allegations public. We get all the details. But first, a last-minute deal today between Ottawa and Google that will see the search engine continue to share Canadian news content on its search engine. That's all part of something called the Online News Act. The company has agreed to contribute a minimum of $100 million a year to Canadian news publishers. Is it a win for the federal government, for Google, both, neither? We find out. Let's start tonight in Ottawa with a last-minute deal between the federal government and Google that will see the search engine continue to share Canadian news content um, online. It's all to do with the Trudeau government's Online News Act, or Bill C-18, which takes effect in less than a month and requires, or it was meant to require, tech giants to enter into agreements with media companies such as Global, uh, overcompensating them for news content that appears on their sites and contributes to their revenue. You may remember that Meta, parent company of Facebook and Instagram, walked away from all of this, saying they weren't going to pay a thing, and decided instead to prevent the sharing of Canadian news content on their platforms a few months ago. You may have noticed this already. You cannot read or you cannot get um, Canadian news links on Facebook these days anymore, but not Google. Today, they worked out a deal which will see the company contribute a maximum of $100 million a year to Canadian news publishers. Uh, Of course, the Prime Minister was talking about this today. They're very happy with getting this deal done because they were in a really tight position after Meta essentially walked away and said, forget it. And there was a lot of criticism of this bill as well. Now, all that being said, uh, the feds had estimated that Google would be on the hook for something in the area of $175 million annually. That was their range. Google's estimate was $100 million, 41% less. And of course, uh, that's exactly what they agreed to, $100 million annually as a cap on that. Of course, it's indexed to inflation. Um, So $100 million a year from Google. The fact is, it is a win for the government politically because they were, again, they were in a really tight position after Meta walked away and the criticism of C-18. They needed a win here and they seem to have gotten something like one. It might be a bit of a Pyrrhic victory, given the, the the amount of money that's actually going to be put in there, hundred million a year. But still, uh, they managed to get it done. We're just waiting on um, our guest, uh, uh, Blaine Haggart, who will be with us in just a minute. He's a uh, CIGI senior fellow and associate professor of political political science at Brock University. He's author of the new knowledge, information, data, and the remaking of global power. I mean, one of the things this whole 
a Bill C-18 thing has proven is that even though the tech giants aren't particularly popular amongst the Canadian public, and I think what the government thought they were doing here was standing up to them for a good cause. I think what the federal government realized is that these massive private corporations, these tech giants, actually don't really need to respond. They don't really feel much in the way of pressure. We all use the platforms anyway. Um, so they don't really feel the need to be backed into a corner by a government, uh, include, you know, Canada's in particular in this case, although the Canadian legislation was modeled after the Australian legislation. Um, and also there were some concerns, I think, from the tech companies that uh, a lot of other countries, such as the U.S., were watching to see how this worked out, to see if a government could, in fact, make these companies pay for something like news content. So Meta walked away. Google has said yes. Blaine Haggard is with us now. Uh, Blaine, thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, this, I mean, honestly, watching this one uh, with the deadline, I guess, coming up on the 19th of December when the Online News Act will take effect, uh, it felt like Google was pretty much holding the cards here, although they did they did make a deal. So I suppose in some senses, both sides got what they wanted. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the one thing to keep in mind is we've only seen a little, we've only seen kind of the money part of the deal, like there's still regulations to come. And I think what uh, the conditions that are attached to the money will tell us a lot about basically who wins and who loses from this. But yeah, it, it's it's uh, yeah, it's very interesting to see to look at that kind of balance of power. Yeah, I mean, Meta had walked away from this. Uh, Google had mm-hmm. made noises about walking away from this, and I suppose they could have. Uh, what do you think? What do you think changed their mind in all this? What do you think was was the clincher in terms of this? They were they are going to apparently put up a maximum of a hundred million dollars a year to be paid to uh, news organizations across the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, first thing I should say is I don't know. Um, yeah. We're, we're gonna have to. That'll come out, right? But I think sure. one thing that's important to point out is that so. I mean, we've, uh, I'm sure that you've talked about it, like Meta walking away from news and basically Mm -hmm. causing a blockade, not just of news organizations on their website, but also preventing their users from basically uh, putting email, uh, putting uh, web web links to news sites on their thing. So, you know, kind of weird form of censorship. Um, But Google, and as important as that was, Google and search is of a magnitude more important than, than, uh, than social media, because Social media people share news and, and gossip and stuff on it, but search is how Canadians now find information. And so, um, you know, it's not just important to these news agencies, but it's also, you know, it'd be like, you know, searching for Justin Trudeau and, uh, and climate change or Justin Trudeau and electricity and no, no news coming up from that because that's how people find out about stuff now. So really, if Google had basically walked away from like, indexing news on its web on its search engine that would have been kind of like a nuclear nuclear option it would have basically decimated the canadian media information ecosystem yeah i guess the problem that all the tech companies had meta and google in particular was that this the the way the bill was originally drawn up this was kind of unlimited right they didn't really know what they were liable for and they were sort of doing a cost a cost a cost analysis based on how much revenue they were pulling in versus how much revenue they thought they might have to give away it was interesting that google's estimation was 100 million the government's was 172 and they landed on Mm -hmm. google's they landed on google's estimation of this yeah. So first of all, I don't think it was. I don't think it was really all about the money. Um, I think that might have been a, a part of it. But the, remember, these are multi-multi-billion-dollar companies, um, and these that the, who who regularly, you know, they kind of like laugh off five billion-dollar uh, fees or fines. So this is so it's uh, 
um, I don't think it was really about the, about the money. I think that that was probably part of it, but but not really. Really, it rather and also they paid um, in other situations um, uh, to uh, news agencies in other countries. They've negotiated agreements with uh, news agencies in Australia, so it's not like they're incapable of doing this, and that it's just oh so hard. Um, Part of it is that they didn't want to be told the context of here's, you know, that you, you will be subject to mandatory arbitration. You, the, there will be these conditions attached to it. So I see this as really about winnowing down the, uh, the conditions that were attached to their kind of uh, to this kind of like, uh, you know, this money changing hands. Right. In other words, they didn't. They want to have some say in this. They didn't want to be backed into a corner by by anybody. Which, which apparently we don't know the details yet. But one suspects when we see the writing uh, of this that uh, that the government will have given them some of what they wanted or some of what they had hoped for. Tell me a bit. But just, I mean, on the other end of this, this is. I mean, I, I was saying before you came on that this was sort of Ottawa trying, thinking it was a good idea to stand up to big tech, trying to get some money for a media industry that is that is in you know, in, in tough shape, um, mm-hmm. and then sort of running into the brick wall that is reality, right? The reality of just how much these companies can be pushed around. On the other side of this equation now, how much difference does this money make, do you think? Um, it, I mean, it's $100 million indexed to inflation, so that that's not nothing. And regardless of some people saying that, well, it is $170 million that was promised, um, it's still $100 million that wasn't there yesterday. So that's got, that's got to help. Um, the other thing I'd point out, too, in terms of what we can expect from an effect is that this system, was, the Canadian system, is modeled on the Australian system, right? And um, the, you know, the Australian government just looked at kind of like the first year of its operation. And what they found, of course, is that, you know, we know that money changed hands. But the other thing, too, is those agreements were secret. We don't really know kind of what happened there. But that the money that was uh, these uh, the deals between um, these, uh, you know, the online, uh, online uh, platforms and media companies in Australia has resulted in the hiring of more journalists, and so that is good. So I think, in that sense, it, it actually probably it's better than it was uh, yesterday. Lane Haggart is with us this half hour at Brock University. We're talking about Google and Ottawa reaching a deal today over the Online News Act. Google will pony up about $100 million a year maximum. It's indexed to inflation to uh, Canadian news organizations as part of Bill C-18. You'll remember, of course, that Facebook's parent company, Meta, walked away from this one a while back. That's why you can't get news links, Canadian news links, on Facebook anymore. Uh, Blaine, I, I suppose, I mean, of course, people government officials, the prime minister, they, everyone was asked today about what's up with, uh, with Meta. And I, I gather that one's, that one's a bit of a done deal, at least for the time being. I guess this doesn't change that. No, it doesn't. And I mean, uh, yeah, we don't, we don't know what's happened. Uh, I don't, yeah, they, they said that they're not coming back, but uh, uh, you know, we don't know. Yeah. What, what have you made of this whole, then this whole battle? Because I think, again, sometimes the road, you know, the, 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 the path to hell is paved with good intentions, right? The government thought it was doing a good thing here and found itself stuck in a very different reality. I mean, is C-18 still viable now that the two biggest companies they were targeting, um, one of them's walked away and the other one's cut out a side deal? Yeah, again, it'll yeah, it'll depend on what happens with Meta. We don't know that yet. The other thing it'll depend on is, uh, like I said before, on what the regulations look like, because this is really C-18, the Online News Act, which is the law of the land now, um, it, it, was, it, was, it was more than just the, the funding. Um, so it was designed to be an improvement on the Australian system, which, like I said before, in response to the Meta uh, to the meta uh, news blackout in Australia, they allowed them to kind of set up their own uh, agreements, uh, funding agreements with uh, with uh, media. And these uh, these agreements have been criticized as being kind of secretive, 
um, uh, you know, not knowing what's in them. Or, and it's also they've allowed the, uh, the uh, big platforms to um, exclude certain um, media companies. And so right. C-18 was really an attempt to kind of make this, make this kind of thing more democratic, more open, uh, more accountable. So whether or not that was still the case, uh, that'll really depend on what the regulations say, what the conditions are attached to this money. Yeah, I guess we'll find that out soon. Um, there was talk about how other countries might be paying attention to, because of, as you described, the Australian example is one, but but pretty much cloaked. This one is promises to be perhaps a bit more transparent. Do you think other countries are watching and might follow suit? That certainly was some of what the government was trying to sell this off as today, which is that this is a this is a trailblazing thing. Uh, I guess we'll see. Yeah, one of the things to keep in mind too is that. Um, we're near the end of the road, I think, in terms of, of kind of lack of platform accountability and, and uh, platform regulation. You've got the, you know, the, the antitrust cases going on in the United States. You've got, you know, years of regulation in the European Union. Countries like Brazil, like Australia, they're all kind of regulating these platforms. The other thing, too, is it's not a completely bananas, insane idea to have uh, these online intermediaries kind of pay to ensure that the that the you know that it maintains the quality of the information that flows that flows through them and that they kind of have some editorial discretion over. Um, so I think that these these are kind of ideas whose time has come. Um, the other thing too to keep in mind is in Canada the I think the discussion has also been a little bit distorted. In Canada the discussion has the debate over this over C11 and 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 online harms has been about should Canada regulate should the government regulate in the rest of the world with maybe the exception of the United States they've already decided on that they said the question is how to regulate so i think they might take some strategy ideas from Canada but as far as the basic idea uh, they're already there Right. I guess we do spend an infinite amount of time comparing ourselves to our big neighbor, and that's sort of what we see this as, right? I mean, that's came up again and again, even talking about C-18 uh, itself. Uh, I guess a political win for the government, do you think, in this one at least? I mean, they were kind of backed, they were felt like they were in, in a bit of a tight spot, and there was a lot of... Listen, I had done interviews on this before, and people, were, people weren't so sure Google were going to come to the table finally on this one. I, I should be. And, and to give Google credit, I think that, you know, that hopefully it's because they recognize that they at least have a role to play in ensuring the health of Canada's information ecosystem because they are fundamentally, they're a part of the furniture. They're, they're, this is what it means to be infrastructure. You can't, as infrastructure, you can't decide, oh, well, we're not going to do this anymore. So like Meta and Google kind of deciding that, you know, if, if Google had decided this, so that they're not going to basically deliver news when they'd set themselves up to deliver news and information. It's kind of like the, uh, the uh, you know, the electricity company saying, we're not going to do electricity anymore, but we're still going to deliver popcorn. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, so so the, so there's there's that going on as well, right? Well, I guess I mean we'll we'll have a look and we're going to see what those regulations look like. I'm sure we're going to find out more about what exactly this deal entails. Blaine, thank you so much. My pleasure. Speaking of the unbelievable, this one sounds like it came right out of a movie script. There were some explosive allegations um, in a U.S. criminal indictment released today in New York that spell out what what appears to be an alleged plot connected to the Indian government to carry out multiple assassinations in North America. And there is a link uh, to the murder of a prominent Sikh activist in B.C. 
earlier this year. Uh, now, this murder-for-hire indictment against 52-year-old Nikhil Gupta says the plot against the American-Canadian target was directed by the Indian government, uh, by an employee of the Indian government who described himself as a senior field officer. Now, if any of this sounds familiar, of course, it's because the Canadian Prime Minister got up in September and accused the Indian government of having been involved in some way, shape, or form in the murder of Canadian Hardeep Singh Nijjar, who is also a well-known Sikh activist and separatist. Uh, apparently, American prosecutors say that Gupta, a 52-year-old Nikhil Gupta named in this case, talked about that murder just hours after Nijjar was gunned down outside a BC Sikh temple. Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc said today that Canadian agencies are working with their counterparts in the U.S. Now, if you remember back to September when the Prime Minister got up and shared this allegation, um, he faced an immediate backlash with India, who called the claims absurd. Well, a different tone from Delhi today, the Indian government announced it will conduct a high-level inquiry into these U.S. allegations. Joining me now is Michael Kugelman. He's director of the Wilson Center's South Asia Institute. Michael, thank you so much. Thanks. Good to be here with you. Uh, the, the indictment, uh, if, if the, I mean, these allegations, uh, is is pretty spectacular, an assassination plot, essentially, targeting no fewer than four people. Um, I mean, what do you make of it? Yeah, it really is quite uh, remarkable, uh, you know, keeping in mind, uh, above all else, that uh, until uh, fairly recently, it was, it was unheard of to, um, to hear of, of India allegedly planning um, an assassination on the soil of, of a Western partner. And of course, uh, you know, Canada has accused India of doing that, and now the U.S. has accused India of doing it. This being a country that, uh, according to some pretty credible evidence, has carried out some assassinations in several countries within South Asia, but, uh, you know, really never anything in, in North America. And now we have these two cases in Canada and the U.S. But indeed, I mean, the, the indictment is extraordinary. And, you know, one thing that stood out for me in reading over it all is that it really seems like, if this is all true, of course, India was really sloppy about this, right? The fact that, um, you know, you had this, uh, this individual that somehow managed to recruit a, an undercover uh, drug enforcement agency uh, official to help him out, uh, clearly it was not uh, handled very well. Yeah, and it does. I mean, given that it's 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 a little bit hard to figure out the timeline because clearly there seems to be a connection between what happened here in Canada back in June, um, in in with the with the murder of of Hardeep Singh Nijjar. At the same time, uh, with the timeline the way it is, it strikes me that the Indian government has been warned, about, have been told about this for for months now. I mean, the Americans went to see them, the Canadians went to see them, and yet they still sort of, up until very recently, were were loudly protesting their innocence on this one, which is a bit of a strange. I, I suppose they're probably, in some senses, maybe trying to figure out exactly what's happened here. Right, and of course, there, there's still a lot that we don't know. I mean, we know that both Canada and the U.S. have accused India of, uh, of engaging in these assassinations. Uh, now, we don't know if that's true. We don't know if, if it is true, if this was a case of the Indian uh, government to the highest levels orchestrating or organ, uh, ordering this assassination, or if you had some rogue elements within uh, the Indian intelligence community. You know, these are things that, that we don't know. But for me, what stands out is the very different reaction. I think you hinted at this earlier. The, the different reaction from India uh, in response to um, the Canadian uh, allegation versus the, the U.S. allegation. You know, the, so far to this point, India has not denied 
the allegation from the U.S., whereas uh, when it came to Canada's allegation, you know, India was vociferously denying it. Now, part of that could be attributed to the way in which the allegation was conveyed, right? Of course, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau went about as public, public as he could, whereas in the U.S. case, you know, the U.S. never went public. They quietly um, followed up with Indian officials to, uh, to convey their concern. You indeed had some very senior U.S. officials, including President Biden, conveying their concerns to Indian officials. But the way in which the allegation was conveyed in the two cases was very different, and I think that might have... Uh, uh, been one reason why India's response or reaction has been very different in the two cases. Yeah, I mean, I mean, oftentimes, you know, the the, the Chinese playbook has always been if you're mad at the at the Americans, you can always push the Canadians around a little bit because it works, <laughs> right? Uh, but I think in this case, I, I think absolutely, I think there were there were two things at play here. One, it was the first one out of the gates. Two, uh, it was very public, and I think right away, backs got up in Delhi about this. Uh, and third, of course, there is the power imbalance. I mean, the Indians have a lot riding on this relationship with America as well, and therefore, but you're right. Today's reaction was. Oh, we'll look into this, which is not the reaction they had when Prime Minister Trudeau got up and, and sort of alleged some of the same stuff. Right, exactly. And, you know, I think that India's reaction in the Canada case has been somewhat contradictory in, in the sense that it's vociferously denied that it was behind this assassination, but at the same time, it's been uh, relentlessly accusing Canada of sheltering. Uh, uh, anti-India terrorists, which is sort of a backhand way of acknowledging that maybe India would have liked to have been behind it, even if it wasn't. So that's, uh, I think, quite uh, striking as well. I suppose in all this, it's important to keep in mind um, what the Modi government is about in India. It's a different government from this, a much more muscular government than, than, than previous Indian governments. Uh, and we're seeing some of that spread overseas, I think, at this point. I mean, as you mentioned, there have been assassinations, reports of assassinations in Pakistan and elsewhere. Uh, but to, to then sort of have, I mean, we don't know enough about it. We don't know how true enough all of this is yet. But to target Sikh activists on Canadian and American soil, I mean, that that is a step very far. I mean, not many, I mean, maybe only the Russians have ever tried to pull that off. Uh, it feels like, I mean, there could be real repercussions here if, uh, I mean, I don't know how deep they're going to be diplomatically, but uh, there's going to have to be some, some there's going to be reper repercussions if this is found to have been true. Yeah, I mean, in the U.S. case, if you're referring to the U.S. case, I think that's that's definitely true to an extent. And you know, one reason why that's the case is that um, for several years, U.S. officials have quietly been very concerned about uh, some of the Modi government's policies. Uh, you know, the uh, the increasing crackdowns on dissent, as well as policies and actions that uh, appear to heavily discriminate against the Indian Muslim community. Also, a lot of concern about um, some of the things that several ruling party leaders have said, the hate speech, very critical, uh, hostile to Muslims. But none of that really impacted U.S. interests in a big way. But now, in a very literal sense, Modi's um, policies have come to, to U.S. soil, right, if, if these allegations are, are true. And I think that's a wake-up call for the U.S. because, indeed, there's strong bipartisan support here in Washington in favor of partnership with India, and that entails the U.S. giving India a lot of free passes when it comes to uh, some of these other concerns, particularly on rights and democracy. But here, when you have the, the, the situation of a possible Indian um, assassination, uh, or pardon me, an, an assassination carried out by the Indian government on U.S. soil, 
I think that makes U.S. officials just a bit worried, quite frankly. I do think that the strategic um, considerations at play, particularly the strong view here in Washington that India has to be a key partner in efforts to work with the U.S. to counter China, that in of itself, I think, would make it uh, very unlikely that we would see a serious, lasting uh, crisis for the relationship. But I do think that there is a, a wake-up call um, that, uh, that that's that's in the case now in light of this, um, the information in this, uh, in this indictment. Michael Kugelman from the Wilson Center's South Asia Institute, the director of that institute, is with us uh, this half hour. We've been talking about this uh, plot, this alleged assassin, assassination plot with links to the Indian government uh, that was uh, uncovered, or the details of it were revealed in an indictment today. Late today, we found out that uh, Henry Kissinger, the former Secretary of State, the longtime Secretary of State, perhaps the most noteworthy or noted Secretary of State, passed away at the age of 100 today. Uh, Michael, it's kind of hard to know where to begin with uh, with Henry Kissinger. He certainly had his 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 fingerprints on just about anything you can imagine uh, in the late 60s through the 70s, all over the world, including, uh, you know, the patch of the globe that, that you specialize in. Uh, what do you, I mean, what's, what do you think his legacy is tonight? Yeah, well, it's clearly a very mixed legacy. And, you know, on the whole, he was, he was a larger-than-life figure and that, you know, being a centenarian, uh, one of the rare people that lived to be 100, uh, he was everywhere and did so much over so much time. Um, but uh, yeah, clearly his legacy is, is mixed. On the one hand, there's I think his well-deserved legacy as a very uh, uh, impressive scholar of international relations, uh, particularly his work on um, you know the role that national interests play in driving nations' foreign policies. Um, you know, but there was also his legacy as a policymaker who. Um, supported um, uh, incredibly violent, brutal, deadly um, courses of action, such as his carpet bombing of Cambodia, uh, as well as uh, his decision to push for supporting the Pakistani military when it was uh, committing genocide in a war in 1971 that led to the independence of Bangladesh. So there's that. But what's, what's, what's most interesting to me is the legacy during his later years. He acquired this very interesting status. I mean, almost he became such a critical figure in popular culture. Yes, many hated him, many loved him, but I think because of his longevity, and he was everywhere, publishing articles, he published a book on artificial intelligence when he was 98, my goodness. He just had this very special reputation of someone who just managed to stick around and keep doing things. And for me, what really stands out is when um, India's prime minister, uh, Narendra Modi, was in Washington uh, this past summer, there was a, a lunch for him at the State Department. And who was one of the uh, distinguished guests sitting at Modi's table? It was Henry Kissinger, the very Henry Kissinger who had angered India for so many years for having um, uh, backed Pakistan in that terrible, uh, incredibly horrific, uh, violent war of 1971. All of a sudden, he's sitting with and chatting with Narendra Modi. So it's really come full circle, I guess. A very, a very extraordinary figure, for sure. Yeah, certainly. I mean, he was in Beijing, uh, I think, last, you know, in, in July. I mean, it's, I mean, his ability to get around, I remember reading his book on China when I was posted to Beijing as well. It's hard to, hard mm-hmm. to make sense of what his impact was in the later years, other than being sort of a commentator and, a, and sort of a thought, a, a term I really don't like, but a thought leader on these kinds of things. Um, but I suppose it was his reputation. That being said, it feels like in the last decade or so, maybe, maybe just this century period, that a lot of a lot of the a lot of the darker chapters in, in, in his career, whether it be the Allende st- the stuff in South America or his support mm-hmm. for dictatorships or some of the ones that you've mentioned, certainly came to the fore. I mean, he certainly was someone who wielded power in a different era. 
Yeah, absolutely. And again, I mean, he he served under so many different presidents. Um, he was present and active uh, during so many different um, you know, periods, critical periods in U.S. history, whether you're talking about normalizing relations with China, ending the Vietnam War, uh, and and so on. Um, you know, I think it's going to take a while to uh, to unpack all of that. But indeed, it is true that in the last few years, there's been a lot of declassified documents and other new evidence coming to light, um, you know, indicating his role in some really nasty uh, policies and actions on the part of the U.S. government, which clearly sullied his reputation. Yeah. One of the things that struck me about him so much, and I think it, it comes up a lot these days with sort of the, the the revolving door of foreign ministers or secretaries of state, maybe a little bit less so in the U.S. Uh, these days, but just the fact that there was a time where the secretary of state or your foreign minister was a really important figure in your government. I mean, they still are to some extent, but they had to sort of come with the, the gravitas of a Kissinger, right, who sort of could wax poetic about just about anything. Uh, he was a tough act. He sort of set the template for what we think of as the modern Secretary of State or Foreign Affairs Minister. And, you know, good or bad, it's a tough act to follow. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, he served as, as a national security advisor. He served as a uh, Secretary of State. But indeed, I think that he imbued those positions with a particular level of prestige and gravitas that, you know, as you say, uh, you know, really set a tone for what was to come. Not that there weren't figures like that, at least in the United States government, before he was serving in those roles. But I think that he definitely brought those positions to to a new level of, uh, of of prestige, and in many cases, you know, there there hasn't really been another figure like Kissinger to serve in those roles uh, in the U.S. government since since he was doing so. You know, someone that could balance that policy acumen with a deep sense of, of scholarly uh, knowledge and and so on. You just haven't had many figures like that in those roles. No. Well, Michael Kugelman, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Uh, I've been asking you about your favorite Dan Aykroyd performances tonight. Um, Vian Edmonton says Driving Miss Daisy. He was nominated for an Oscar for that one, if I remember correctly. My Girl. That's an underrated movie. Not a kid's movie, by the way, My Girl, but uh, but a good one. And The Great Outdoors. Those are all good ones. Most, most listeners tonight have really been focused on the Blues Brothers for obvious reasons. I mean, Dan Aykroyd from, you know, I used to watch I remember watching a bit of Saturday Night Live when they when they first used to put the VHS tapes out I was too young to see it in its original incarnation but from Saturday Night Live to the Blues Brothers to Trading Places Ghostbusters I mean Dan Aykroyd is a Canadian comedy giant he's also always had a fascination with the supernatural and things that are strange but true stories that are unbelievable but true and now he has a new series debuting on the History Channel on Friday, December 1st, called The Unbelievable with Dan Aykroyd. Here's a trailer. Would you believe me if I told you that with certain weather conditions, molten glass can rain down from the sky? Or that the U.S. Navy spent millions developing a ray gun that makes people puke? Or that soldiers trained a bear to carry munitions on the front lines? Well, believe it, because these stories are 100% true. Mind-blowing stuff. The Unbelievable with Dan Aykroyd. New series Friday, December 1st on the History Channel. That's right. I mean, he is, in fact, the executive producer and host of this. Uh, He's, of course, an Academy Award-winning actor, comedian, writer, uh, and producer. Uh, But this is an interesting one for him, too, because, again, he, you know, he studied criminology back at university a a, a ways back now. But he's already really been into kind of uh, things that are strange but true. Thus was some of the inspiration for Ghostbusters, by the way. Some of the incredible stories that he looks into in this 10-part series or these 10 episodes is the 
Great Molasses Flood of Boston in 1919. Uh, there was the Killer Dancing Plague in France, I believe, back in the 1500s. There was a 440-pound Syrian bear, which he mentions in that trailer, turned into a military soldier. Um to a man that was struck by lightning, I think, not once, not twice, but seven times, and many, many, many more. With more about the unbelievable with Dan Aykroyd. Joining me now is Dan Aykroyd. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Great. Good to talk to you, Ben. There is perhaps nothing more, some, nothing I enjoy more than, hey, did you know? So, What a great bunch of stories you've selected here. I mean, have you always had a love of kind of odd tales? I, I grew up loving odd tales, but same for you? Well, who, who doesn't uh, want to know about extraordinary things that have happened to our fellow humans and things that completely defy sometimes explanation and flat belief? And what's great about the series with History Channel, The Unbelievable, is that all of the stories are true, but they are in themselves absolutely outrageous. Like the guy who got hit in his life seven times by lightning. Yeah. You know, Roy Sullivan, he was a park ranger. Whoa. Wait a minute. Hold it. That's bad luck. The Japanese government, so concerned about the loss of ships between 46 and 51, nine ships disappeared in this one particular area of the Japan Sea. And they traced it to a legendary feathered serpent harassing the ships. And it got so bad, the government had to look into it. Then there's the island uh, in Mexico, the island of Dolls. For some reason, this island has, over the years, accumulated, we don't know how, a, a, a collection of dolls. Maybe people bring them over there. A guy moved on to there, and uh, he didn't fare very well. You know, why would you move uh, to the island of dolls or the island of snakes? Or what, what this show does is it takes you to places that you're really fascinated with, but you never want to go where, there, you know. You never want to go. Uh, but they, but they're, they, uh, what we depict are these great stories and great places that enable us to sit from an armchair and just marvel at what some of our humans have gone through and what they've accomplished. We do a story about a guy who can run on ice for miles on blocks of ice or frozen lakes without it burning his feet, without it affecting his feet. And uh, then there's, you know, stories of survival, desert survival. There's a guy who got caught in a boat down at basically many fathoms down, and he was in the hold of a boat. And for three days, he was there before they could get and rescue him. And just the the perseverance. And see, this is our common thread. Our common humanality is is the thread we all we all have. It's all it's all part of existence. And it happened to people just like us. Yeah, all these all these things happen to people just like us. Stranger than fiction is always is always what enticed me so much about stories like that. You know, the the bear, the bear who became part of the Polish army, the the, the great molasses yeah. explosion, which I'd actually never heard of growing up in Montreal, not too far away in Boston. But these are just absolutely remarkable events. And when I started Googling some of them and looking through, I'm like, oh, my, wow. They said, yeah, they really happen. True. Yeah, they really happen. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, how did you there's there are many out there. How did you sort of narrow it down? What was really what enticed you to certain to certain tales? Well, what en what enticed me uh, was the concept of the show and then the trust that I have in the History Channel researchers. That they're, you know, the best in the business. So they found these stories, researched them, uh, and we worked on the copy together, um, developing it to sort of whatever my voice would be. And so I left it up to them to find the story. Some I'd known about, the headless chicken. Two years, chicken lived, made $2,500 a day. 
you know, the guy, uh, so, somehow that chicken lived for two years with no head. Uh, Phineas Gage, very famous. Uh, he was a railroad worker and a rod was driven right through his brain, right down through his jaw and became a subject of neuropsychology studies for years be because of the effect that he had had on his uh, on his thinking, his temper, aggression versus, uh, you know, uh, milder behavior. Um, that I knew about. Uh, the molasses flood I knew about Boston. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Didn't know about the big beer flood in London, though, in the 1800s. Yeah. 570 tons killed eight people, deluged a neighborhood because some guy put, forgot to put a hoop on a barrel in the in the brewery. And there was a one million liters. It, there was an explosion that just blew the pl place apart. You've always been interested in I, I, mean, I know that you studied criminology briefly in Ottawa and then and you've always been interested in, in parapsychology. Obviously, Ghostbusters was a big nod to that. This is always you've always been interested in the curious. Well, I, I I think that you know I'm not alone. We all, no. like yourself, and we 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 all are are fascinated by you know mysteries that defy explanation. And and uh, these are not mysteries; they're true events that happened, and they defy explanation. I'm not alone in the pursuit. And there was a, a gentleman by the name of Charles Fort who was born at like the, the you know in late 1800s and practiced into the 40s or so, and he had a compendium of weird events like the town in Maine where the green mists came off the water and ate the top of off the top off all of the street lamps. That's one of his stories. He used to catalog frog falls, fish falls, you know, where you're standing there and all of a sudden thousands of frogs start raining from the sky. Now there have been, you know, theories that water spouts picked them up and dropped them. And some of the things he was able to prove scientifically and explain, and some of the things are completely baffling. So I hope next year that we do start to look at the Charles Fort catalog, because uh, those are wonderful stories that I would like to tell. Yeah, you must feel like there are many more out there. Once you get going, you have oh, 10 episodes yeah. here, but there are there are just there's an encyclopedia of these remarkable stories out there. Some of them are sort of phenomenon. Others are sort of man-made. The bat bomb was a really fascinating one that I didn't know yeah. about as well. Yeah, yeah, the bat bomb. Not a great weapon. No. You just don't know what bats are going to do. You know, you just don't know. But the fact that Roosevelt signed off on it and liked the idea, that was that was fascinating to me. Dan Aykroyd is with us. The show is called The Unbelievable with Dan Aykroyd. These are, it's a series of unbelievable stories over 10 episodes. I mean, some of them just are so, are, you can't imagine that they could be true. The bat bomb was the one that really stuck out to me. Uh, this bomb that they had built, was approved at least in the Second World War that that unleashed bats with, with parachutes. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it's all yeah. based on truth. Uh, Dan, I was thinking over your co comedic career as well, finding the unusual must have been such an important way of going about going about what you did. And here we are again, sort of talking about the unusual, but being able to spot the quirky and the different is kind of part and parcel of everything you've done. Well, I didn't do it alone. I always had great writers working with me, but I have a kind of, a, I don't know, an absurdist mind, I guess you could say. And uh, I kind of feel like an alien on this planet. Um, so I, 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 I do look at things in, a, in an oblique way, and maybe that did help in comedy perspective. Certainly, there's some stories here that are, on the face of it are very funny uh, on the face. But when you look at the tragedy of them, uh, again, people will be awestruck and gobsmacked with our story about the killer dancing plague yes. in Europe in 1518. They couldn't stop dancing. It was a uh, hypnotic fit. 
And people died dancing uh, to the extent. Now, this would be the equivalent of a modern day rave. <laughs> Maybe they were taking psychotropics. I don't know that we touch on that in the story. We might. Mass hysteria, right? I mean, just you're right. The yeah. human, I mean, whether it's the natural world descending on us or yeah. us reacting to what's around us or us building things that are so truly bizarre or stories of mm -hmm. extreme incompetence, the poodle or just fate, the poodle that killed three people overall. I mean, these are, yeah. it's, it's what you, it's a great variety of tales, by the way, you really sort of, I imagine set out to tell different kinds of stories that were intriguing in their own right. Uh, again, I trust history channel and their researchers and writers are great. I didn't really approve any of the content except in terms of, working on structure and, again, making my voice there, working on the script that way. But uh, but no, the uh, stories, I, I couldn't believe how much fun we were going to have with them. And we had, we had just fun telling them. And of course, the way they animate things on History Channel and the experts they have, it, it's going to be a hot show. It sounds like you had yeah. fun doing it too, which I mean, it sounds like it was a labor of love. I did. I did. I love this material. And I like narrating and hosting a lot. I, I, I narrated the Travel Channel uh, Hotel Paranormal. There were some really neat stories there. You know, again, true ghost ghost stories there. I narrated up several uh, war documentaries in Canada here, and a, uh, a thing called uh, "The World Without Canada." Do you remember that series? I do. Yes, indeed, yeah. that was excellent. So I have fun that sitting in the studio and doing it. Really, really have fun. So I, I, I enjoyed it, and and I know that uh, we'll we'll do some some great great stories next year. We're almost head hitting Christmas, and it's been forty years since Trading Places comes out. My favorite Christmas movie, Trading Places. Did you did you set out to make a Christmas movie? This has always been a question I've wanted to ask you. Um, not at the time. Uh, it wasn't thought of that as as per you know Home Alone or Christmas Story or one of one of those that you know, on the face of it, you know, they're telling you this is a Christmas release. Um, but in in time, it, it has become. A perennial Christmas screening special. It's on networks all the time at Christmas. So I think it's joined the pantheon of of Christmas movies. And it is a good one. It is a good one. I, I, I'm I'm proud of that one. You know, that was a triple A, triple A effort on all our parts. You know, it certainly was. You know? I, I didn't know this till I looked up because I was looking up strange tales. Apparently they air it in Italy on Christmas Eve every year now. It's like a ritual. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Jamie Lee was great. Landis, you know, we were running on all 16 cylinders, you know. What's cool about uh, this show is that I get to be twinned with with Bill Shatner because he right. does the unexplained. So uh, we're kind of going out as a double pack there. And uh, that's an honor because, of course, you know, who isn't a fan of Shatner? He's such a great, uh, a great Canadian and a, and a great guy and uh, a fortunate working actor right here, right into his 90s, I believe. Yeah, so... So being yeah. twinned with him is really, really fun. And I hope that, that we got another season out of it. I know I know people are going to love it. I really do. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it certainly is, again, as I said, perhaps the most enticing words uh, in the English language are, did you know? <laughs> the unbelievable yeah. with that, Aykroyd. Thank you so much for your time and congratulations on the new show. And remember, Christmas is coming. Get your mini heads all over Ontario, LCBO. Yeah. Makes a great gift at Christmas. The Crystal Head Vodka, no additives. Thank you. <laughs> Dan, thanks, thanks for your time. Much appreciated. All right. Take care. It's time to talk to a journalist who's been doing some interesting work this week on our Journalism Corner every Wednesday night on a little more conversation. Uh, this week, I mean, listen, as far as I can tell, um, 
these YouTube videos are fairly standard. They put them up all the time. Very few people watch them, um, and they don't get a lot of attention. Uh, but this week, a completely and totally different story. So let me give you a bit of the background. Um, the vice admiral, that vice admiral of the Royal Canadian Navy is Angus Topshi. He's basically the top admiral in the Navy. So he puts out this quite um, fast-paced uh, he's talking fast, YouTube video this week, where he talks about the Navy being resource-stretched in a critical state, maybe not be able being able to carry out basic duties next year. Um, and so all of a sudden, people were sort of like, well, these videos are usually fairly banal. I'm like, wow, what is this? Uh, have a listen. Make, be, be, be your judge for yourself. The RCN is in a critical state, with many occupations experiencing shortages at 20% and higher. There's a simple reason for this. Despite their very best efforts, CFRG has not delivered the required intake for the RCN for over 10 years. While our overall attrition is generally good, our MarTech leaves us every two days. Our West Coast fleet is beset with a shortage of qualified techs, constraining our ability to maintain and operate our ships and causing us to prioritize the Halifax class at the expense of the Kingston class. Yeah, I mean, you you can follow along there. It's quite technical overall, but anyone anyone who knows their stuff would watch this and think, "Wait a second, that's that's pretty blunt. <laughs> that's a pretty blunt expression of unhappiness as it was put over the state of the armed forces." He also mentions other branches of the armed forces as well. The video runs uh, just under six minutes. Uh, there's been a lot of reaction to it. Uh, no one knows these issues as well as as my next guest, David Pugliese, is the military reporter for the Ottawa Citizen, and he's been with us before. He joins me now. David, thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, great to be here. Thank you. Uh, I was, I mean, it was funny because I think I've seen those videos now and then in the past and you just sort of kind of, your eyes kind of, not glaze over, they're, just, they're usually quite, quite mundane. This one was anything but, this one was, was I watched, I'm like, wow, that's quite the video. Well, I mean, it's interesting, you know, uh, Topsy is, um, is acknowledging a lot of the stuff that's already out in the public domain. Um, so in, in the sense of it's unusual in that he's a senior leader, he's going off the standard message that they have. So, you know, he talks about the problems they're having with uh, the Harry DeWolf class. Well, we know that because we've done articles on it. Um, you know, the same thing with recruiting, the major, major problems with recruiting. And he, you know, finally acknowledges that in, in this video. So a lot of what he's saying isn't um, isn't new, but the the different angle is that it's coming from him, and it's an acknowledgement that that what's been happening is is uh, you know kind of reached a critical point. Yeah, and just the domain too, like putting it in what is. I guess we're so used to hearing to seeing those sorts of promotional videos mm -hmm. as being as being sort of just just promotional right that to sort of hear someone sort of hear someone speak those sorts of things in that context even at the very fast pace in which he speaks it and fairly technical i mean you you know the military inside out so you know how technical mm -hmm. it can get how acronym filled it can get um but it's still the message comes through loud and clear i mean it, it does beg the question how bad are things right now for that kind of that kind of statement to have to be made 
Well, I think the Navy is going through some real significant issues, and so is the Canadian Forces, uh, significant issues um, uh, with with staffing, with recruiting. Uh, it's just not attracting a lot of young people. Now, it's interesting because the standard line that the Armed Forces and the Navy uh, have had, oh, it was because of COVID. But he says in that video that recruiting hasn't uh, kept up for the last 10 years, for the last mm-hmm. decade. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, well, the first thing that in my mind is, why not? What is, you know, why, why haven't you fixed it in the last 10 years? So, I mean, that was the one thing that kind of really, you know, jumped out at me. And so, but they have been having um, a lot of problems uh, with the, you know, the new uh, Harry DeWolf class ships. Uh, you know, I've written about this, uh, you know, uh, engine breakdowns, generator breakdowns. Uh, contaminated water on the on the ships. These are being built by Irving. Um, you know, so you know that's that's an ongoing problem as well. And uh, right. maintenance, money, um, he's got it all there. So, yeah, I mean, both you and I are in Victoria, which, if listeners mm-hmm. don't always know, is a Navy town, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it may not you may not notice it when you're standing in front of you know standing in the Inner Harbor, but it's it's a Navy town, and long has been. Uh, and he was mentioning some of the impacts it's had too, just on on their ability to have sort of a Pacific ready force, which I thought was was pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, again, this shortage of personnel and and ships uh, per se is is is, is um, limiting what they can do. They want to expand the navy, and the government wants the navy to expand further into Indo Pacific, but it's it's difficult to to put the ships out uh, when you don't have enough crew and when you don't have the ships available. What do you hear from the inside on this? Because you mentioned, of course, this is a problem that 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 crosses all branches right now. Uh, but to hear a, a top leader, uh, such as the Vice Admiral, sort of spell out that this could have, this could limit their ability to be to be ready, to be prepared, in other words. I think if you're a non-military person, you hear that and go, well, that that, that sounds like, that sounds like it's quite, I mean, this was sort of a, a, a really raising the alarm. And of course, we've been reading about sort of cuts from the defense budget. I don't know how you want to spin that, but, you know, the government's looking, federal government's looking for cost savings. They're taking a, a bunch of money out of the out of the military, which, of course, they say they're not. But, you know, a billion dollars is a billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, it's not so much the money aspect. It's, uh, you know, a billion dollars uh, from their budget has an impact, but it's it, it hasn't created the problems that, that Topshi is, is talking about. Right. I mean, these problems have been, as he points out, you know, at least a decade in the, in the making. So you've got, um, you've got ships that uh, new ships that are less than, you know, there are problems with them. The other issue is they're building a ship that has gone, or a new fleet that's gone from $25 billion to approximately $80 billion. So, you know, that's another problem coming down the pipe. Where are they going to find that money to, to uh, you know, for those new ships? But the recruiting issue is... Um, is is key and it it's really hurting. Yeah, I mean we we've seen it right across the board, and I, you know I mean everybody is having for the past mm-hmm. while at least everyone's been having trouble recruiting. But you mentioned this goes back a long ways. It, it, it's it, it is it's 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 odd to think of what happens to a to a country when the military can no longer effectively recruit. 
uh, or at least it seems they're having an incredibly difficult time recruiting yeah. these days. I mean, they're having the same problems in 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 most Western countries. So in the United States, they're having uh, you know significant problems, uh, and, and you know along with the other NATO allies, it, what's happening is uh, you know there, there's a shift, and and there's not a lot of young people that are interested in in the military and in in the sense of you know if you're joining the navy in particular you know and you're going to see you're going to see for you know a, a six month deployment well you know that uh, in today's young families i don't know if uh, you know that's that's a real selling point uh, to bring people in and there's always yeah. going to be people that are that are interested in that but you know that's obviously not enough yeah, if when we talk work-life balance, that might yes, might yeah. be, mightn't be what it looks like. You wrote a really interesting article this week. Speaking of sort of procurement, you wrote a really interesting article this week about the Aurora surveillance aircrafts and uh, these and, and sort of uh, uh, maybe it it seemed like reading through it that there was a bit of duplicity going on from the federal government on this one. What uh, what did you find? So what, what's happening is the Aurora aircraft, um, you know, the backbone of our uh, maritime surveillance uh, um, uh, aviation uh, fleet, uh, those aircraft are just going through a, a modernization program. So the next uh, uh, next year, the all the modernized uh, Auroras will be coming off the line and they'll be flying and, and such. But what has happened is the, the Air Force was going to get a replacement. And so last year they went to industry and they said, look, we're, we're interested in replacing. We're going to start the process next year. And um, it'll be a long process, but we'll have aircraft, uh, you know, in the 2030s. Well, all of a sudden, this changes last year. And it shifts to focus on one particular aircraft, the Boeing P-8, and um, and and so that's what uh, what's happening there. It's it's expected uh, the Liberal government's going to announce uh, the acquisition of Boeing P-8s in a, in a deal worth uh, you know up to eight billion dollars. Wow, nothing ever moves that quickly when it comes to those sorts of things. No, <laughs> I know. And so what's happened is um, a Canadian industry and a Japanese industry as well, they had all kind of uh, said, okay, we're interested in this program. And then everyone was, was caught off guard by this by this quick turnaround and uh, no one else was consulted. It, it just became a focus on the uh, the Boeing aircraft. Yeah, um, it sounds and, familiar, doesn't it, David? It's, yeah, it that does. Sounds, that sounds familiar. <laughs> familiar, like with a bad ending. Familiar. Yeah. Well, yeah. we'll we'll see how it you know see how it plays out. But I mean, the Trudeau government is under a lot of pressure um, in the United States from the United States to uh, not only uh, spend more, but the Americans like it when you buy American products. And uh, and you know, so uh, Trudeau, after saying he wasn't going to buy the F thirty five, is is now buying the F thirty five. Which is built in Fort Worth, Texas. So, nineteen right. billion dollars. Um, the uh, P eight is built in Seattle. Um, so, you know, it's uh, Boeing is is quite happy about this. Um, but you know, Canadian uh, domestic con uh, companies are are not so thrilled. No. Plus, there's been a, been a fair amount of money spent, I imagine, on the Aurora upgrades as well. I mean, that doesn't mean these yeah. aircraft are no longer useful, but if you're going to go and buy something new right away, it sort of suggests that the maybe the retrofits wasn't wasn't the modernization program might have been a good good uh, a good investment. 
Well, that's the issue. Like the, you know, the um, uh, ministers have been told that the aircraft are state of the art, and ca- Canadian domestic industry has has um, built up this capability in anti-submarine warfare surveillance that that second that's that's you know world class, and then all of a sudden um, that's all going to be kind of pushed to the side, and then we're going for a totally different uh, product and a different, uh, you know, a different set of equipment. Ottawa Citizen Military Reporter David Pugliese is with us this half hour. We've been talking about all sorts of stuff. Henry Kissinger, I noticed, of course, Henry Kissinger uh, passed away. His death was announced tonight at the age of 100. And if uh, you were someone who paid attention to foreign affairs over the course of the 60s, 70s, 80s and beyond, he's certainly a giant name. Uh, His legacy, though, David, uh, checkered now, very checkered now. (laughs) But I was saying earlier that he was was sort of set the template for what we think of as being sort of the, the master manipulator of foreign policy gurus right i mean it's been he's been a tough act to follow and some people may think that's a very very good thing or some people may uh, see him with a bit of nostalgia yeah i mean uh, if you take a look on social media it's uh, it's yes. um it's it's quite interesting to see a lot of the comments uh, uh you're right i mean he was uh, you know he broke down barriers with china he you know got the us out of uh, out of the vietnam war but uh his legacy is certainly tainted um you know overthrowing um uh, government in chile uh, um, bombing of cambodia uh there's a lot of uh, a lot of emotion online about uh, about his legacy yeah, I, I mean, it feels like his legacy has been put under a very different microscope in the 21st century than it was, mm-hmm. say, when I was at school, at university. We, he was still sort of talked about as being sort of an eminence of foreign policy, and that certainly changed uh, in, in the last 15, 20 years. Yeah, I think as, as uh, you know, documents are declassified, uh, books are, you know, books are written about uh, the various wars or various coups. Uh, or the uh, foreign policy of the United States uh, in that period, you know, uh, new information comes to light, um, and 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 that's what uh, you know playing a role in this. Yeah, he was certainly unapologetic. Uh, if no. anything, yeah. he was unapologetic about his legacy. Yeah, that's for sure. So um, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. It's like Colin Powell when when he died. You know, the first. You know, everyone was talking about uh, not his uh, military, uh, his, uh, you know, uh, career, but, but you know, his, his screw up in Iraq. So um, I think, uh, you know, and that's that's what's what's happening with uh, Kissinger's legacy here. Yeah. I, I was interested when, I mean, I've always, I was, it's interesting, I, military museums are fascinating spots. Uh, and sometimes within the Canadian military, things that should be in museums are still are still being used. But I was reading an article you wrote a little earlier uh, this month about uh, the last operational Buffalo aircraft mm-hmm. being, finding a home in Ottawa. <laughs> it is in a museum now, yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> it, it should have been there a while back, I think, but now it's finally in one. Yeah, so, I mean, so what happened there is, uh, you know, the Air Force uh, took the Buffaloes out of service finally um, now they're still waiting for a replacement plane because there's problems with that but that's that's a whole nother story um, and some of the buffaloes um, which operated here on the west coast um, have gone to military museums but the one you're talking about it was the the final one and it's it's gone to the main aviation museum in uh, in ottawa yeah they saw some incredibly i was just reading through your article they saw some incredible um duty if to put mm-hmm. it that way, over the decades, mm-hmm. they've been uh, a real workhorse, uh, you know, over 
over over decades and it's the same almost like with the the twin otters and 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 these classic uh, canadian aircraft uh, that that we've come to know so um yeah it has quite a legacy yeah absolutely well david as always thank you so much for your time i appreciate it thank you Let's talk about shrinkflation. We don't do it all the time, but it's a subject that I always like. Of course, when I go to the grocery store, I always try to pick out what's smaller or thinner than it used to be. Um, we've talked a lot about it on the show. Uh, the practice of, of giving you less of the product for the same amount of money, usually in de- the deceptively same-sized packaging. Sometimes it's a little thinner, or they do little things, but it looks a lot the same. The latest one I was reading about today, and thanks to the food professor, Sylvain Charlebois, who we've had on the show before for pointing this out, is Kraft Dinner. Uh, you get less D in your KD, apparently, these days. It's gone from 225 grams for a standard box uh, down to 200 grams. That's about 11, 11% uh, decrease. Um, Kraft confirmed in October that it had, in fact, reduced the size. In what it says response to inflationary pressures related to ingredients, labor, transportation, and to, quote, maintain quality products at an affordable price. But what it means is you're going to get less in that box. And it follows in a long list, long line of other products that have suddenly shrunk before our very eyes over the past 12 months or just slightly more. You get 14% fewer Chips Ahoy cookies, for example, in a bag of Chips Ahoy cookies these days. 17% fewer Bits and Bites, if that's your thing, if that's your snack of choice. 13% less in a Betty Crocker cake mix. And even Cadbury cream eggs, apparently are 13% smaller now. This is something you should be watching out for for the holidays. Apparently, those the space between those chocolates and a box of chocolates is starting to get pretty noticeable. My next guest is no newcomer to this phenomenon. He's been watching this happen for decades. Edgar Dworsky runs two sites dedicated to consumer matters, such as uh, Shrinkflation, including Consumer World and Mouseprint.com. And he joins me now. Edgar, thank you so much for your time tonight. Well, thanks for having me on. It's funny how it happens across a whole number of products, but when it happens to something that everybody knows, it becomes a big deal. So now here in Canada, craft uh, dinner, eight ounces to seven ounces, as far as I can tell. So uh, about 225 to 200 grams. It's basically an 11% shrink. Uh, not surprising, I suppose. I mean, everyone's been doing it in 2023. Absolutely. And I tell you, this item, craft macaroni and cheese, is certainly very popular in the United States. I mean, I ate it as a kid. I have been tracking this product, believe it or not, for at least 50 years, not so much from a shrinkflation standpoint, but just whenever I would do comparison shopping between different supermarket chains, you look for common items that you can find anywhere. And the seven and a quarter ounce, that's what it is in the U.S., Kraft macaroni and cheese was always a standard. And I double checked before I came on the air with you to see what size is it currently in our supermarkets. It's still seven and a quarter ounces. So for more than 50 years, it has not changed here. Stay the same. I guess here it went from 7.94 ounces, which is 225 grams, to 7.05 ounces, which would be 200 grams. So it went from being more to being slightly less, I guess. I mean, most consumers won't notice it, but no. you know, think about it from the company's standpoint. If they save a dime on every box times how many million boxes do they sell, this is big money for craft. Oh, it's huge. I mean, again, it's. It, I was looking through, there's been a list published here by a news organization called Radio Canada, which is the French side of CBC, and they basically tracked all these products. And I was looking down the list, so a lot of cereals, yogurt, crackers, 
things that involve wheat, pasta, and all of it's, you know, usually between 10 and 15% reduction. And if you think of that, that's a lot, it's a lot of money. It's a lot coming out of the consumer's pocket. Maybe it's only a few pennies or a nickel or a dime for each person, but, you know, multiply that out and it's on common products. And, you know, these companies are really masters at packaging disguise. You'll never see on the package, look, new, smaller size. Um, that's why in, in France, you know, there's one supermarket company that now is labeling products that have gotten smaller. So the consumer knows when they grab it. I mean, these boxes of craft, for example, appear to be exactly the same size. So unless you're kind of trained on the net weight or on a paper product, the net count, how would you know you were getting less? You just don't, you know, I mean, that that's, that's part of the problem. And you have to be a pretty savvy consumer because you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you've been following this for years and years and years. Have they hidden it better or has it, has it always been the same since you started tracking this decades ago? I, I think they hide it better, you know, when manufacturers make the product smaller. That doesn't mean the package is necessarily smaller. Or maybe they change an inconspicuous um, dimension of the package. For example, there was, there was a cereal a year or two ago. You look at them side by side on the shelf. One was 14 ounces, one was 12 ounces. And you say, they look identical. You had to turn the boxes sideways. Then you saw, oh, look, the new box is, you know, maybe a quarter of an inch more narrow or half an inch more narrow. Who could catch that? And years ago, Skippy peanut butter changed. It was always 18 ounces in the United States, and it went down to 16.3 ounces. That's a sizable change. But you look at the jar side by side. How did they do it? If you turn to look at the bottom of the jar, you saw they put an indent in right. the new jar. So basically the bottom was hollow. Yeah, I've, I've noticed cereal boxes have become sort of architectural marvels these days because they're getting taller and thinner. That's the that's the. Way. I don't know how they even stand up on the shelf anymore, <laughs> some of them, to be honest. I don't get it. And, and, the, and the other yeah. kind of companion thing that the cereal makers have done, they're now focusing the consumer's attention on a size name. So it may say large size or family size or giant size or mega size. And to the extent they're habituating people to look for the size name, people are going to ignore the size number. And that's where the secrets are. If you don't know what size it was last time, how are you going to spot a change? So clever. At the same time, I mean, they argue that this prevents them from having to pass on sort of fairly substantial price increases to the consumer, right? I mean, that's always been the counter argument is, yes, we're giving you a little bit less of it, but just imagine if we gave you the same size, we'd have to charge you, you know, 20% more and you wouldn't want that or, or but, we wouldn't want that. But it is a price increase because you're getting less for your money. And if you figure out the unit price, instead of paying, I don't know, 12.3 cents an ounce, now you're, you're paying, you know, 14 cents an ounce. So you're paying more and you have to buy it more often. Think also maybe there's an environmental angle here of all the extra packaging because you now you have to buy more packages of the particular product. 
Yeah. What are some, I mean, it feels like you can almost tell what's gone up in price. I mean, it's been different in the past couple of years because just about everything has gone up in price when it comes to food. But you, I guess you can sort of track what's going up in price by what manufacturers are doing with certain products. That seems to be the case here as well. I mean, we know that sort of grain prices have been up since the war in Ukraine and everything that involves grain from pasta to crackers to cereal, that's all started to shrink, I've noticed. And those tend to be the typical categories. Cereals have been downsizing. Cookies and candy have been downsizing. Paper products historically is one of the biggest offenders. You know, there was a uh, Charmin toilet paper, which I assume you probably have up in Mm -hmm. Canada, started out at 650 sheets on a roll back in the 1960s. If you could even find a single roll nowadays, it would have about 62 sheets on it, about 90% less. That's why these makers, when they keep shrinking products so much, they finally have to come out with a larger size. So that's why you see double rolls and triple rolls. And for Charmin, mega rolls. And now there's even a super mega roll. The super mega roll is about 342 sheets, 344 sheets, give or take. That's still 300 sheets less than the original one from the 1960s, but it is double ply now. We're talking shrinkflation with Edgar Dvorsky, who knows all about this. He's been following it for years. We've been talking about getting a little less D in your KD. Boxes of craft Dinner have suddenly shrunk by about 11%. Uh, Edgar, what should we be looking for during the holidays? I remember you saying Halloween candy sure looks smaller this year. I saw a box of chocolate. Pot of gold chocolate is a Hershey's product. And this is very similar to what happened um, last Valentine's Day. This pot of gold product, if you open it, and there's a picture of it on Reddit at the moment under their shrinkflation subreddit, you see the candy is spaced maybe two inches from the next one. And the next one is another inch and a half or two inches or an inch away from that one. So where they could have crammed this box that looks like a pretty decent box that someone gave you a present, you'd be thrilled until you opened it up and you maybe only saw 12 candies in there when they easily could have put double or triple the number in there. So if you lift up the box in the store, if you haven't paid attention and it feels suspiciously light for the size, you know you're about to be taken. Yeah. I noticed uh, last year that turtles, have, and no, no offense to turtles, they're great, but the turtles have sort of started to sh- shrink to the size of large M&Ms now. So it's been interesting to see how, how they, I mean, they must have entire departments within these organizations working on nothing, forget the product and how it tastes, simply trying to find ways to, to provide, to make as much on the margin as humanly possible. These people are very clever. I mean, they, they should put it to some, you know, better use, maybe some higher purpose for, for us consumers. But we all just have to pay more attention. And in a sense, we're at fault. Because if we are not paying attention, if we're not net weight conscious, that you're not paying attention to the net weight of a product, you're not looking at the count on paper towels, or toilet paper or napkins, how are you going to spot a change? And then when you do spot a change, you do have some options. You can switch to a different brand, maybe that hasn't downsized yet. You can send a letter to the manufacturer. They're not likely to change, but they may send you a coupon for a dollar or two off. So you'll save a little money. You can look for a store brand. You know, store brands tend to be the ones last to change. And be careful. Look at the unit price. What is the actual price per gram? 
you probably have that in some supermarkets right on the shelf. That way, with things of different sizes, you can find which one is genuinely the best deal. For the many years you put into looking into this, this must be a fruitful time. And it must, in some ways, warm the heart that so many people are talking about it all of a sudden. It's become popular, but downsizing has existed forever. I think back to the 1960s, you know, when I was a teenager, I noticed my candy bar by Mounds Bar was no longer two ounces. It was a little bit less. The origin of downsizing, which is the old name, shrinkflation is the newfangled name, uh, according to the folklore, basically is there used to be nickel candy machines back in the 1950s. And the chocolate makers announced to the vendors that they were going to raise the price. And, you know, they went crazy. Well, what are we going to do? Our machines take a nickel. We can't have it take six cents all of a sudden. So someone came up with a brilliant idea. Oh, just make the candy bar a little smaller and you can still charge a nickel for it. So this has been around forever and it will continue to be around forever. Should we should we be warning consumers better? I know Carrefour, that a French chain, grocery chain, announces when something is smaller. That seems to me like a pretty decent idea. I mean, buyer beware, but it's it's information that, that consumers could use. As you point out, you'll never read a box that says, you know, now smaller, now fewer of your favorite crackers, right? I guess they could market it as fewer calories. That would be a way around it. But anyway. Oh, actually, I had someone do that. I was in a store, a grand opening of a supermarket here a few years ago, and I was looking at the Nabisco Oreos, which had apparently just been downsized. And I spoke to the Nabisco salesperson. I said, you know, why why do you do this? He said, well, think of the positive side. There are fewer calories in every package. So someone will come up with a marketing spin. Do I think we'll ever see a law? Probably not in Canada or the United States, you know, possibly somewhere in Europe. I mean, there is a law in Brazil. It's the only one that I'm aware of at the moment that says, If you're going to shrink the product, you've got to put the old size and the new size right on the package and the percentage difference. Thank you so much for your time on this. Well, thanks for having me on. We were talking about shrinkflation. I'll be curious to know when you go out this year, when it comes to Christmas stuff, what you notice, what you notice has gotten smaller. I did say earlier, I've noticed these pictures floating around online about boxes of chocolates that just look like there are far fewer chocolates in those boxes than they used to be. In Forrest Gump's words, if life is like a box of chocolates, it is a lot thinner than it used to be. That's that's what's going on. I gather that's what you have to watch out for uh, this year is, is those boxes of chocolates are getting smaller, at least. One thing that will never disappoint, I don't think, is that Christmas mandarin or tangerine. I guess it depends where you are. But that Christmas orange thing, that's not what we think of as an orange right? Um, this is that time of year where they start appearing everywhere, right? You get those crates of uh, clementines and so on that start to flood into supermarkets. Um, it really is part of a holiday tradition in this country. And I was curious about it. There was an article about it that I read this week and thought, was what a great story, because I didn't know. Um, it dates back more than a century. Apparently, this country, we import about $180 million worth of clementines annually, almost all of them in the next few months, like just November, December, January. Um, and our, the reason why they're a holiday tradition goes back a long time, about more than a century, to the West Coast, uh, when there were something called Satsuma mandarins from Asia that were around 
around in the holiday season, more or less. Japanese immigrants in Western Canada receive them in gift baskets from family members back home to celebrate, I gather, the Lunar New Year, which is usually not around Christmas, just a little bit after it, um, usually a month and a bit, maybe a bit more. Um, but I remember living in China that mandarins and mandarin trees were a big part of every Lunar New Year uh, celebration. Uh, and this was all outlined, outlined by McGill University food historian Natalie Cook, along with other scholars in her book, Gastronomica, which she released in 2020. So I was really curious about this history of the mandarin. You must get them in your stockings. I always have, right? You get. I mean, I don't have a Christmas stocking the same way as I used to, but um, you always used to get a mandarin or a few or a couple in, in your Christmas stocking. And I didn't really know where that tradition came from because I know that in the States, it's not really the same thing. Now in Britain, they sort of have the Christmas orange, as far as I know. I'm not entirely sure where that Christmas orange comes from if it's a mandarin or an orange or a spanish orange or Seville, you know what i mean a Seville orange um maybe someone out there knows this and can let me know one 9898 but i was really curious about this history of the so-called christmas mandarin christmas clementine christmas tangerine in this country and uh, so i tracked down natalie cook who wrote that book to ask her about it she is in fact a full professor in the department of english at mcgill university but her research really does focus on um on food. and She's a food historian. She joins me now. Natalie, thank you so much. Thanks so much. It's, it's remarkable when you think about it, how much, I guess, I guess it's seasonal as much as anything else, but how much the holiday season invokes certain food and culinary traditions that if they're absent, like if you move to another country, you immediately notice that they're not there. And Canada's no different. What are some of the ones here that are most prevalent? I mean, we, I've been talking about sort of the Mandarin, Tangerine, Clementine. I know I'm not sure what the what the what the varietal difference between all of them is, but we sort of small small oranges or small tangerines at Christmas is something that's been with us for well over a century now. Absolutely. Basically, the Asian immigration in the early 1800s meant that immigrants were very sad to not to be able to have their delicious foods of the season. You know, and think especially about the Lunar New Year uh, or about, you know, a, a spot of color in the middle of, the, of our darkest seasons. And so the Japanese community in about 1877 started um, importing mandarin oranges and they showed up in the gift packages sent from home. These were the care packages, you know. This is what you really need at this time of year. Um, and as a result of that, they started to be imported at that time of year. And increasingly with the Asian community, especially with the Chinese community, as they came to work on the railway, there would be this huge importing of Mandarin oranges um, during the winter season. And in fact, they came by rail and the Canadian Pacific Railway actually dubbed one of their cars in 1977 the great orange car because wow. it had this huge shipment of oranges. I guess that's why that tradition is as much talked about by people who grew up in Winnipeg as it is people who grew up in Vancouver, right? Vancouver, obviously the port of entry for much of this. I mean, this changes over time, but this was very much a West Coast phenomenon as these shipments would come into the port of Vancouver from Asia and then be sold, no doubt, throughout BC. Exactly. So we see that we see it happening in the West, especially in the prairie provinces, as well as British Columbia. And in fact, our literature has examples of 
deep, dark winter, you know, which is really brightened by these images of oranges. So Sinclair Ross's very famous novel, As for Me and My House, has a very poignant scene where there's an orange that's given as a kind of symbol for the light and hope in the winter. But, you know, they come to the East as well. And so we see, think about um, Leonard Cohen's poem, Suzanne. Yes. Right? Suzanne takes me down, she feeds me tea and oranges. And those oranges are probably not coming via Vancouver. They're probably coming from Morocco at that point, and they're coming through the port in Montreal. And so a Torontonian or a Montrealer is actually probably sourcing their oranges from a slightly different place, but at the same time of year. And it's also symbolizing this wonderful you know, exuberance, this splash of gold in a very cold season. Yeah. And again, even when I was uh, I was mentioning, I grew up in Montreal. So my association with tangerines or the mandarins that we would get at Christmas was the Moroccan ones. They have a little sticker on them that says Maroc on them, Morocco in French. And that's what I associated with them. So I guess by the time uh, the 60s, 70s rolls around, two different parts of the country are getting their Christmas oranges from different places, as you mentioned. Yes. And, it, and in the East, it's not just Morocco. I mean, they're now coming from Spain as well. Um, they're also coming from Israel and they're coming from, you know, other places essentially in the East Mediterranean. So they're coming from different ports of entry. And yet they've, I mean, the growth of them, what's interesting about it is how they, is how they were glommed onto by different people, despite the fact that they would have shown up, whether whether it was in the Japanese Canadian community, or the Chinese Canadian community, the late 1800s, how others would discover them and then make that a kind of, not that it's uniquely Canadian. I know the, the in Britain and in Ireland, they have Christmas oranges as well, but they don't, I often read stories from Canadians who've moved to the US where it's not a tradition. And it, I didn't realize how typically Canadian it was. Yeah, it really is. It's interesting. We, um, We've imported some foods and we've made them Canadian. Um, and actually, Cohen's poem is wonderful because it it gives us both of them. It gives us tea and oranges. Right. Do you remember that commercial? Only in sold only in Canada. Pity. Yes. Right. I mean, yes. tea has nothing to do with Canada unless it's Labrador tea or you know bush tea. Mm. But the notion of imported tea being Canadian, it's very much a story that we've told ourselves. The Mandarin and the Clementine story is makes so much sense. I mean, think about we the North, right? I'm I'm in Montreal today. It's minus four or minus five. Yesterday the wind was pretty brutal. Clementines and mandarins look pretty good in the store right now. They really look as though it's a ray of sunshine that's showing up. Um, so for that reason, and also because they do fit very nicely in a, a Christmas stocking. You know, they fit a different tradition. They also give you an injection of vitamin C at a time of the year when you really need it. So, I mean, it, there's a very practical advantage to it as well as the symbolic advantage. And now, of course, what's interesting about the tradition carrying on is that you can find mandarins pretty much year-round. We forget, I mean, I forget that they're actually a winter, late fall, winter crop right? You forget that. And it used to be that they were only available at this time of year. Now, of course, you can buy them year round, but the tradition, the tradition continues. And that too is, that too is interesting. Aha, uh-huh. but they're not always tasty. True enough. Year round. <laughs> like I mean, you, have to, yes. Yes. you have to be quite an aficionado to understand. And, and, and you know, the disappointment, you've got one of those boxes and you ferry it around into the bottom and you get that moldy one, or you get the one that's bitter or or chewy and it's such a disappointment when you're expecting something else the other thing about mandarins it's interesting in chinese in in mandarin actually the the words for gold and orange rhyme 
So it's a very symbolically and etymologically, it's a really nice word. It's rather like that, um, the apple in the Garden of Eden. You know, chances are, wherever the Garden of Eden was, it probably didn't have apples. It probably more likely had pomegranates or figs. But the word malum, because it means evil in Latin, was just so symbolically and etymologically appropriate for the story that it works very well. And one thing that I was always really impressed by, and this when I was living in Asia, was just how the presentation of fruit, right? They wrap, it's, just, it's, it's individually wrapped. Now, this may not be the most environmentally conscious these days, but it's presented in a way that I wasn't used to seeing. So gifts of these boxes must have been, these boxes first arrived in, uh, in, on the West Coast back 100 and some odd years ago, more at this point. It must have been pretty impressive for those who'd never seen fruit presented in that way, because they are very quite ornate. The packaging is ornate. Yeah, it's a very good point. Actually, we have a chapter on tea and oranges in our book, and and one of the images are these wooden crates being unloaded from um, boats in the port of Vancouver. And it's clear that there's been real care in in wrapping them and shipping them. That in itself, I think, must have been hugely exciting because people, if they had the time to go down to the docks, would have been seeing these shipments arriving. Natalie Cook, a food historian, is with us also, a professor at McGill University. Uh, the book that she co-wrote in 2020 is called Gastronomica. It includes all kinds of interesting stuff, including a chapter on tea and oranges, which is in some ways about what we're talking about tonight, which is the Canadian tradition of the Christmas orange. It happens elsewhere. It exists in the UK and in Ireland as well. Not in the US as much, but it's one of those things that we're talking about, the origins of it, which dates back to the late, mid to late, 18, well, late 1800s uh, out on the West Coast when those shipments would come in from Asia, where the Mandarin and the and different forms of the Mandarin have long been associated with the holidays, Lunar New Year in particular. Digging into this is interesting, uh, Natalie, you must have seen other examples of this as well. The Mandarin is the one I think that is the, the most colorful and the one that is the most ingrained in many memories, of many memories, including mine. Um, but there must be other examples of things that we do here in Canada that are somewhat different from what's done elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely there are, but you're right. The Mandarin is the, is the most colorful. Um, and in fact, I'll show you in a minute that it, mm -hmm. it shows up on the cover of our book, which actually right. is about food scenes in literature. It's called Canadian Literary Fair, right. um, with a pun on the word fair. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm sitting in Quebec at the moment. One of our specialties during the Christmas period is tortière. And here, actually, tortière is a meat pie that's usually served on Christmas Eve. But it's not necessarily the tortilla that you're thinking of that you might be able to buy in a store, which is a you know, relatively thin meat pie that right. looks a bit like a contemporary apple pie. Instead, it's a deep dish pie with multiple different kinds of meats. So it's really a, a very festive ceremonial kind of pie for Christmas Eve. The other one is, um, you know, in Britain, you'd think of Christmas cake. And that typically would be a fruit cake with some marzipan and royal icing. And you might even have a twelfth night cake on January the sixth, which is the you know the the day of epiphany and and it with little pieces in it that would have different characters. Very seldom that you would have that here in Canada unless you were really eating with an English or a British family. Um in Quebec, you would have a bouche de Noel. This the kind Christmas of log, yeah, yeah, exactly. That would be a Christmas log, and it would be much more in keeping with what we think of in the winter season that we're lighting a fire and we're desperately trying to stay warm in some cold, dark nights, depending on where we are, even out where you are, Ben, in Vancouver, where there might be some, some rain outside. There's something else that's 
that's a Christmas food that you won't think of. And I only discovered it when I was looking at all the different accounts of Christmas since the first account of one actually in 1847, it was potatoes. Potatoes show up in just about every single description of Christmas or and winter solstice celebrations. So think about Diwali, for example, you would eat sweets, but you'd also eat alu tikka, you know, think about Hanukkah, you eat potato latkes, right? right? Um, think about um, the roast turkey or the roast goose, you know, surrounded by the roast potatoes. And I, I almost laughed out loud when I was looking at Ricardo's, you know, describing his Christmas feasts a few years ago. And he was talking about his mother's-in-law's wonderful fluffy mashed potatoes. I wonder if he knows how appropriate that is. That is, potatoes came with the British, British settlers. You know, the French who were here, uh, didn't think potatoes were really worth human consumption. And so they were given to the animals. But potatoes became this, you know, this very popular, very useful food in lots of different ways. Yeah, they don't, they're not nearly as nice in a stocking, I know, but that's the mandarin, but they are. Yeah, no, the, the, the Quebec has its own sort of Christmas fair, which has been, which is always, always interesting as well. It, 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 you know, again, here we are heading into the holidays and it's, it's just fun to see the, um, how many different, how many different traditions we have in this country that are, that we think of other people having them as well and don't so that in every place you go, the holidays are a little bit different. And uh, in this case, obviously the Mandarin, the Mandarin origin, and it feels like it's going to, what's interesting about it too. And I know you've, you've looked backwards a lot is that looking forward, it feels like these traditions are being picked up and continued as time goes on. The, the, you know, the idea of the Mandarin orange of the Christmas orange has survived a long time considering how much our food marketing around the world has changed, how much more available things are, how much more exotic things can be. Absolutely. But think about it. Think about our current um, notions of mindful eating. We want food that's unprocessed. We want food that, that you know, is, is health giving. And the mandarin orange fits those bills, whereas some of the other um, holiday holiday foods, including baking, I hate to say, we all love it. But we know when we're indulging in those kinds of prepared foods that it may not be the healthiest for us. Are you curious about what they ate in 1847? Absolutely. The 1840, is this the 1847 Christmas dinner? Yes. This is a Christmas dinner. It's not settler colonial dinner. It, it's held in Fort Edmonton. Mm -hmm. And it consists of, it's delicious, by the way, boiled buffalo hump and calf, dried moose nose, which is otherwise known as moose snuffle, white fish, buffalo tongue, beaver's tails, roast wild goose, and wait for it, potatoes. But there were no pies and there was no dessert. No. But it was but the, really... The root vegetables are the same. Of, root vegetables are the same. And it's a feast of meat, which is what we see in earlier winter celebrations as well. That this is where you bring out the bounty. You do right. the best you possibly can to put as much on the table for a feast. And just a few decades away from the mandarins finally arriving uh, on the West Coast. Natalie, thank exactly. you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much.